Welcome to the Financial Times in London. I'm Andy Bounds, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. A report commissioned by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, a UK charity, shortly after the Brexit referendum in 2016, found that those who voted to leave were poorer, less educated, and more likely to be living on the margins of our society. These people also generally live in areas left out of recent economic growth and where the government's austerity programme has reduced public services. They had a big say in the decision to leave the EU and their vote could be an equally important factor in determining the next government. Not only are they turning out to vote in greater numbers than before, but they're also the group most likely to switch party. So what do they think now? The Joseph Rowntree Foundation joined forces with the think tank UK in a changing Europe to survey this group to see what they want from a post-Brexit Britain. I went along some of the 18 workshops that were held in nine locations across the country. I've also interviewed a couple of those who took part. So let's listen to the views of Andy, a 32-year-old warehouseman from Halifax, and Chris, a 45-year-old hotel concierge and night porter in Leeds. Both told me they voted for Brexit in the 2016 referendum and were broadly supportive of Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister, and his determination to leave, deal or no deal. I've only been living here a couple of years. My partner says that it's been quite run down in this area for some time. She's been living here for 12 years and it's worse now than what it was 12 years ago, but it's always been pretty bad uh, as far as I'm aware. There's just no money getting pumped into these areas in in the towns that surround. It's mostly the city centre, the town centres that get looked after and then there's no money left over for the rest of us. When I first moved in 10 years ago, there were quite a few shops, you know, clothes shops and quite a few restaurants. But then, obviously, it's a small distance to walk from city centre, so the footfall wasn't great, so sort of a lot of them just disappeared. We've now got one pizza chain. We had a bar that was independently owned, but the rents were charging, getting stupid amounts, so he decided to upsell and went left. Firstly, there should be more money put into the police. Um, crime is quite big ground here. Um, I've lived in a few places in Yorkshire, um, Halifax, Bridlington and South Emsall and crime is rife in all these areas. So I think the police should be funded massively and also uh, buildings, roads, things should be looked after. There's quite a few new builds going up around this area that you find that, oh yeah, they need to offer so many that are affordable. But, you know, they might order, if they're building like 200 apartments, they might offer 10 that's affordable. You know, it needs to be a bigger percentage because all they have is just they want to get as much money as they can possibly from it. I'd love to retrain um, in in a trade, maybe electric, uh, gas, something like that, but it would be impossible for me to fund it. I I couldn't afford it, I, um, there wouldn't be the time. If I worked full-time like I am now, I just wouldn't be able to do it and I couldn't afford to quit this job. So I think retraining people should be uh, should be a priority. I think industry's tailed off doing in Leeds. Grew up in the east of Leeds, now living in the city centre. Um, you find a lot of factories now closing down. You know, Everything's getting shipped overseas, Mainly for probably financial reasons, really. I think we don't make anything anymore. It's just, you know. 
Yeah, London probably gets fifty percent of the money that's allowed for the country. I don't I, well, I don't know figures, but uh, I, the majority goes there. It's clear. I've been to London quite a few times, and it doesn't matter whether you're in the centre of London or if you're in a town at the side of London. It's all looked after. There aren't many as many deprived areas. So there's an insight into how people are feeling in some of these deprived communities. Here with me now is one of the report's authors, Professor Annan Menon of King's College London. Uh, Annan, can you tell us why the areas chosen for the survey were selected? Why those towns and cities? Well, they were selected to be as representative as possible of the different kinds of less well-off places we have in our country. And there are a variety of places from cities, and the Joseph Rowntree Foundation has done a lot of work on geography, distinguishing between core cities and non-core cities, towns that live in the shadows of cities, and towns that are far more remote and away from cities. And what we wanted to do was get a sense of not only what people in less well-off places think, but of the variety of views there are across different sorts of place in that category. So we were trying to be representative, though knowing full well that only with a limited budget we couldn't tick every single box. And were they significant places politically? Uh, Yes, several of them are obviously marginal seats. But as you said in your introduction, one of the interesting things about them is that this particular stratum of voter is perhaps more significant or seen as more significant than they've ever been because, as you say, they are more likely to switch party when they vote and they are turning out in greater numbers than they did in the past. So for that reason alone, there's a real political significance to this. What was the objective of doing this research? What are you trying to find out? Well, I'll probably speak personally here. I can't speak for the whole team, but for me, several things. I mean, firstly, we've spent an awful lot of time since the referendum of 2016 with people talking about the left behind, which isn't a term I like, but it's entered sort of popular parlance. And it struck me that whilst we've spent a lot of time talking about them, we haven't spent an enormous amount of time listening to them or figuring out what they want. So for that reason alone, I thought, given that actually... The range of possibilities now in our politics seems a lot wider than it ever was before the referendum. It would be nice to talk about the sort of people who had voted and made their voices heard in 2016 to see what they expected, wanted, hoped for in the years to come for their localities and for their country. And what came out of the research? What kind of policies, what sort of things do they want to happen? Well, lots of things came out of the research. I mean, firstly, there was this almost sort of heartbreaking sense of inevitability, that things aren't great here, the local area is going to pot, crime is high, there's litter, there's no opportunity, that politicians don't care and aren't going to do anything about it. And, and perhaps the saddest of all, the degree to which people in all these places, I think, had internalised the message of austerity. There simply is not any money, is a refrain we heard over and over again. But then if you look into what people were saying in the way of solutions, it was interesting because on the one hand, a lot of it was very local and relatively easy to fix, you know, whether it's the lack of green spaces, you heard in the clips, the lack of policing, to, you know, what amounted to quite a sophisticated analysis of the state of the economy. Several people, particularly in some of the towns we went to, talked about the national economy being rigged. Part of that was, as we just heard, disproportionate attention and cash being given to London. Part of it was the fact that people didn't have the opportunity to do proper training. Non-university training and education was a key theme that came out of all this. So it's not rocket science, but the sort of things that matter to these people are things that we just haven't spent enough time talking about, particularly given the way Brexit has sucked the air out of politics. And how many of those policies are in the hands of Westminster and London politicians and UK politicians and devolved administrations and how much are in the hands of Brussels? Well, 
everything is in the hands of national politicians. It's one of the ironies, I suppose, of the Brexit vote. I mean, I don't want to get into why people voted to leave and people voted for a variety of reasons, but one of them, for some people, was a sense of frustration with the way things are done here, with the fact that politicians didn't listen. Let's face it, and this is one of the sort of saddest sort of subplots of the Brexit story for me, a lot of these problems were in evidence well before 2016. They were things we could have dealt with, addressed and spoken about well before 2016. And yet it took that referendum for us to be sitting here in the offices of the Financial Times discussing them. So in that sense, at least what they did for those amongst them, and not all of them did, who voted leave, was at least they got people's attention. So do you think politicians are listening now? Are we likely to see any policy changes? Politicians are listening, but politicians are doing precious little. You know, if you think about the striking things that have happened since 2016, one of the most striking was in July of that year when Theresa May stood on the steps of Downing Street and gave a speech that made it sound like just after voting to leave the European Union, we'd found ourselves with a Christian Democratic Prime Minister. You know, talking about the just about managing, talking about injustice, talking about these being the people that her government would work for. Fine words and actually a very, very good speech. One that captured as well as any other speech the reality of where we were. The thing is, nothing happened. We heard it again with Boris Johnson's speech in Downing Street that he too was talking about similar issues. So, People are talking about it. What needs to happen now is someone doing something about it. And as I said, actually, some of the issues are relatively easy to tackle. Some to do with the workings of the economy overall are far, far less so. But there are a group of voters here who have lost faith in politics and I think would be relatively easy to persuade that actually if things are going to be done differently, we can help you out. And that will make a difference politically to our parties and their fates. There's been a lot of talk about boosting public spending and yet still, you know, the outgoing Chancellor Philip Hammond would say, watch what you do, watch what you say, the money's still pretty tight, the economy may take a hit, a lot of people argue, if we do come out of the EU. So is there much scope really to tinker with austerity and put money back into these communities? Well, there is a degree of what is now called fiscal headroom. I imagine someone in this building has sat down and totted up how much the various pledges that Boris Johnson made in Parliament today would come to, and I suspect it's quite a lot. But we don't know exactly until we know how we leave the European Union. If we leave the European Union under the terms of something that looks like Mrs May's deal, then over the medium to long term, yes, there will be an economic hit but it will be an economic hit compared to the state of the economy had we remained in. And most projections assume the economy will continue to grow. Under those circumstances, there is some fiscal flexibility. There is the ability to borrow. I mean, interest rates are very, very low. And we could do something about it. If we left with no deal, things are far more uncertain. We don't know precisely what the short-term economic hit would be. Of course, the government would be able to borrow. And of course, the government should borrow. But ultimately, the economics of no deal will be far more precarious, it strikes me, than the economics of leaving with a deal. And so there will be more scope to deal with these sorts of issues and address the sort of complaints we heard from your two interviews there in the event of an orderly rather than a disorderly Brexit. We've seen a phenomenon with Trump in America. We've seen the gilets jaunes in France. We've seen the rise of the populace in Italy. Do you think that a lot of it is tapping into the similar feelings for these voters that we've been hearing from today? Yeah, similar but different. I mean, every place is specific. I mean, you can extend it way beyond the Western world, actually. A lot of the rhetoric and the campaigning tools used by Narendra Modi were all too evocative of the kind of Brexit campaign of the Trump campaign. There is this sense, a sort of slight hostility to the outside world, to globalisation, a sense of frustration with growing inequality. Yeah, I mean, there are some common threads. 
What I would say is I would distinguish the gilet jaune from what's happening here, certainly, in the sense that the gilet jaune were a protest about the fact of a political system that seemed massively unresponsive to demands. You think back to that French presidential election, and I think 42% of the electorate voted for either Mélenchon or Le Pen. So 42% essentially voted anti-system, and for their trouble they got President Macron about as far from what they were after as you could imagine. So what we have to do here is show that our system is responsive and actually start doing government again rather than going round and round in circles on Brexit. I think one of the most fundamental mistakes that Prime Minister May made was not to appoint a deputy prime minister to whom she said, look, while we're handling or not handling, as it turned out, Brexit... I want you to start addressing some of those issues I raised on the steps of Downing Street. So at least after I've ceased to be prime minister, we can turn around and say, nope, we didn't sort Brexit out, but we've started to address some of the reasons that lay behind it. And that, for me, was the ultimate failure. I mean, one thing that struck me listening to the people in the focus groups is an awful lot of these questions, such as funding, training, you know, that came up in the Auger report, you know, adult training should be funded. Social care, a lot of people worked in care sector and were struggling to make ends meet. There's been a lot of talk about how to solve that problem. It seemed like the solutions are out there, but they're not being deployed. Absolutely. I think there are two things going on. The first is sort of attention span and the fact that Brexit has taken over everything since 2016. The other is a lot of the kinds of problems we're talking about are relatively long-term in nature. And our politics is so febrile, it is so unpredictable, it is so unstable that the notion that we can have a government that can plan not for the next five years, but for the next 15 or 20, and I'd include the whole climate emergency in this, is fanciful. But it's something we need to start being able to do. Otherwise, these problems are going to go unresolved and we'll be stacking up more of the discontent we heard so much about in all these places. So what would you like to see happen with the results of the research that you've done with the JRF? I'd like to see government look at what we found and take it seriously and address some of the concerns of these people, concerns that are relatively easy to address in the broad scheme of things that have been left unaddressed for far, far too long. Thank you very much, Anand, and thanks to you for listening. You can find a link to the report and my article about it in our show notes. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.